Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, episode number 76. At the time of this recording, Bitcoins are trading at $389 each, and everybody's favorite digital currency, LTB coins, are trading at $0.000086 US dollars each. While the price is low, this is a great time to buy some LTB coins from one of the exchanges, such as Poloniex. LTB coins are paid to content creators on the Let's Talk Bitcoin podcast network. And you can also earn some LTB coins just by listening to the show. Listen for the magic word, write it down, and submit it as detailed here in the show notes. And listeners, before we get started with the show, I'd like to share with you a website I recently discovered that will help keep you up to date with live streaming cryptocurrency prices. Check out CryptoCompare.com. This is the best resource I've found for looking at trends and for gaining valuable information about digital currencies, mining equipment, and wallets. Bookmark it now. CryptoCompare.com. Mm, mm, mm. Now that's gravy. Welcome to Bitcoins and Gravy, and thanks for joining me as I podcast from Nashville, Tennessee, the Bitcoin center of the South. I'm here each week with my trusty dog, Maxwell, right by my side. Say hello, Maxwell. (laughs) We're two Bitcoin fanatics who love talking with people about Bitcoin and sharing what we learn with you, the listener. Long-time listeners, thank you once again for supporting the show and for your generous tips. And new listeners, welcome to the show. Today's show, I am privileged to have back on the show Mr. Paul Snow. Many of you know Paul from the Texas Bitcoin conferences and also from what I consider to be one of the most important platforms emerging from the Bitcoin space. And yes, I'm talking about Factum. In this interview, Paul and I talk about the progress being made by Factum. We talk about the great blockchain size debate and we touch on the Hearn affair, affectionately known as the Hernado or the hernia, and how it has affected morale in the Bitcoin community. Paul is a wealth of information, so listen up, folks. You are sure to learn something. Listeners, once again, I am thrilled to have here on Bitcoins and Gravy, Paul Snow, the brains behind Factum. Paul, is it fair to say that you're the brains behind Factum? Oh, goodness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much. I'm certainly involved in the design and implementation of Factum and uh, may have been the one that coaxed it into existence. So having a lot of fun here in Texas, uh, sitting in front of my uh, great big monitor uh, coding and having an opportunity to take a break to talk to you. Oh, nice, man. You're in Austin, Texas, right? Yes. For listeners that don't know, Paul is there in Austin, Paul and his wife, Linda. How is Linda, by the way? 
Oh, Linda's doing fine. Everybody here in Austin is having a good time. We enjoy reading about uh, the snow up north. Yeah, we got uh, almost a foot. It was crazy. It shut the whole city down, and now, just three days later, it rained, and it's almost completely gone. That's Nashville. Well, there you go. And, of course, some parts of the country aren't so lucky. They get it, and they keep it until the spring, and then they play slush for a while. Yeah, it's rough. I'm from Indianapolis, so I know about that, and I don't really miss that aspect of it. But Paul is in Austin, Texas, and he and his wife have coordinated two fantastic Texas Bitcoin conferences. And Paul is also a unicyclist. Is that right? <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. I can't claim to be of great skill, but I can get on it and ride. Last year, I had the opportunity to ride about 20 miles before the uh, Texas Bitcoin Conference, trying to drum up a little bit of uh, PR, and that was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, that's great, man. I've never saw you on the unicycle, maybe one of these days. So we can talk about Factum, which is very important, of course, but I also wanted to talk with you about you know, a lot of what's floating around <laughs> the BitSphere these days with the blockchain debate and all of that, it's gotten pretty heavy. I like to think that here in the first quarter of 2016, things are already starting to calm down a little bit. Maybe what's your sense of that? And uh, can you educate our listeners a little bit about it or at least give your opinion, your side of what's going on? Oh, certainly. Um, there are a lot of design considerations for a protocol like Bitcoin and one of the design considerations is how big the blocks are because those blocks have to be transmitted around and you know pushed around the network so that all the client bitcoin clients can be updated and, and have a proper view of the pending transactions you know the transactions that have been accepted by the bitcoin blockchain mm -hmm. and the bigger those blocks are the more network bandwidth you need, the more storage you need over time and computational overhead to verify and validate transactions in those blocks. Mm -hmm. And every node does this work. And so if the blocks get bigger, then it takes more computational power to run what they call a full node. And that is a node on the Bitcoin blockchain that's connected to a number of peers and is a essentially one of the nodes in this large interconnected network of blocks that transmit all the information around the world. Mm -hmm. um, so basically, somebody in China can send a transaction into Bitcoin. They'll talk to perhaps a node that's um, in their country, might bounce around once or twice in China, cross the what they call the Great Chinese Firewall mm -hmm. and bounce around the rest of the world and everybody sees that transaction. Um, transactions are relatively small. They move uh, around the network fairly easily. But at some point, all the transactions within roughly 10 minutes get packaged into a block. And that block gets validated by some miner he applies the magic proof of work to the block, and that block um, it, to the miner that finds the solution with the proper proof of work uh, submits it to the network, and that block has to bounce around. Mm -hmm. Now, if the block is a meg, it's basically a fairly low size of a fairly low resolution picture. Mm -hmm. And so when a node sends that to five or six of its neighbors, it's 
sending a low-resolution picture to five or six of its neighbors. Mm -hmm. If you double that size and it's two megs, which is the typical suggestion by projects like Bitcoin Classic and now Bitcoin XT and others, if you move it up to two megs, well, you're not just, I mean, you are doubling the network capacity, but you have to understand that you're passing it to all your neighbors in the network, you know, because your node needs to be connected to more than one or two neighbors. It's usually connected to like eight. Mm -hmm. So that means that one megabyte block means you have to send eight megabytes out uh, to your neighbors. Two megabyte block means you're sending 16 megabytes out. Mm -hmm. So that's where the argument is that we need to be careful about block sizes. If it becomes too difficult to send those blocks on the network, too expensive for users to run a full node, then fewer people will run full nodes and you will have less redundancy in the network, less double checking of all transactions. Mm -hmm. And the way a lot of people on the small block size side of this argument will claim more centralization to the point that, you know, if I take it to the extreme where the blocks are really big, like maybe 32 megs or something, Maybe only institutions are big enough to run a full node, in which case you're really submitting your transactions to a big institution, mm -hmm. and now you're you're not really Bitcoin, the decentralized payment network of the people, mm -hmm. but you've become Bitcoin, the centralized province of large institutions. Listeners, obviously this is all very technical. Many of you have already read about this, heard about this. Those of you who have the experience that Paul has and the aptitude understand exactly what he's saying. Some of you may not. So I wish that I could explain everything that you explained as well as you can, because I just cannot. You know, I don't have a technical background, and that's probably part of it. But anyway, I think you explain that exceedingly well. Let me pause you there and ask, what do you think about that argument about centralization? Obviously, if we woke up one day and Bitcoin was just completely centralized, it's on a server that was controlled by a government, and they could shut it down anytime and control it, obviously, we would all be very unhappy, right? Right. So where do you stand on that argument that having the block size too big, that could lead to centralization? Uh, there's no doubt. There is a point where the size of the block does get too big for individuals to run full nodes and will push the implementation of the nodes of the networks towards a centralized solution. There is a point where that's true. The question is, where is that point? You know, at what point are the blocks really too big and everyone needs to be really worried? And at what point can we say, well, the blocks can be a little bigger. Because keep in mind, since the very beginning in 2009, blocks have steadily grown in size year after year after year after year. That's it, right. Bitcoin was launched in 2009. It's now 2016. We've been going for six, nearly seven years now. And, you know, the blocks have continually grown. And we have noticed some centralization. Um, back when the blocks were really small and it only took a few gigabytes to download and you would have a full node running against uh, the database, um, there were a lot more uh, people using their personal computers to run a full node than there are today. Today, we're, we're down to about 6,000 or so, hmm. plus or minus, full nodes in the Bitcoin network. Uh, two, three years ago, we were about 10,000. We peaked at about 10,000 nodes. 
So we've lost some notes. So to some degree, there's some validity in that argument. Mm -hmm. I would also, though, point out that the block size is not the only centralization pressure that we have. Okay. Um, one of the other centralization pressures that we have in Bitcoin is a stagnant, if not falling, Bitcoin price, which is what we've seen, you know, since 2013. We leaped up to, you know, $1,200 for a brief instant mm -hmm. um, for Bitcoin, but, you know, per Bitcoin. And right now the price is hovering you know, just a little below $400 last I looked. We were stuck in the 200s there for yes. a long enough period of time to assure that psychologists and psychiatrists out there were making a killing with the Bitcoin patients, right? Oh, yes. Yeah, the therapy costs alone in the Bitcoin community. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, but yeah, the, the stagnant price and the slowly falling price, because Bitcoin didn't fall just immediately down to 200 from 1200 it 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 took six eight nine months for yeah. it to, to kind of dribble down to like three hundred, and then it took like six or eight months for it to dribble down to like two hundred. I think it may have even dipped under two hundred yeah. on, on a few spikes. Yeah. And and then now it's been kind of growing a bit. We've gotten we got over four hundred. Then we had the um, tornado or the you know turn. <laughs> Uh, meltdown or uh, the hernia, whatever you want to call it. I like to call it the hern affair. The hern affair, yeah. Um, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, where a very prominent, very respected, very bright, um, very productive uh, developer in the Bitcoin space, um, you know, got really tired of the small block side of this argument and uh, declared Bitcoin dead. Uh, listed out all of his grievances and and said, you know, I've liquidated my holdings in Bitcoin and I now consider Bitcoin a failed project. I don't want you to think that that was lost on me because I really liked that, the hernia. <laughs> <laughs> That was not lost on me, man. <laughs> well, I, I, um, I just ran across that one today. Um, it was in somebody's Bitcoin history. Um, nice. The one I, I encountered yesterday was the Hernado. I thought that one was cute. But in any case, Mike Hearn is a great guy. Yeah, And I wish him all the luck. And I completely sympathize with him on all of his arguments and all of his discussions. But my point in all of this is we've had a little dip in the price. Everyone got to declare Bitcoin dead because somebody else said Bitcoin was dead. And that echoed around the mass media. Some counters, you know, people that count the obituaries for Bitcoin count it as obituary 89 wow. <laughs> uh, for the Bitcoins. Other people count about 101. Okay. I don't know where the real count is, but it is. It's up there. <laughs> It is up there. It seems like every few months somebody declares Bitcoin's dead for yeah. some reason or other. Yeah. And Bitcoin keeps moving along. So I believe to the bottom of my shoes that Bitcoin is going to survive, it's going to thrive, and it's going to continue on. You're going to see, you know, the price rise again because, you know, we do have a halving of the rewards and that takes a lot of Bitcoin inflation out of the ecosystem. Yeah. When there's fewer Bitcoin in the supply, the price naturally will rise. You know, the sun will come up and shortly after that, the sun will set. This is just the way it is. Yeah. It's going to do that.
But when the price begins to rise, and let's get back to the centralization issue. Okay. When the price begins to rise, people get excited about Bitcoin. When they get excited about Bitcoin, inevitably people decide they want to run a full node so they can watch it run for themselves. Sure. Um, There are people that are looking at increasing the um, attractiveness of the experience. I mean, today, if you run a full node, it has almost all of the excitement of a DOS command line, okay? (laughs) It really doesn't tell you much. I mean, if you didn't know better, you wouldn't know you were doing anything at all, okay? So people are talking about putting uh, some graphics on there, some interfaces, allow you to see something of Hmm. what the node is doing. I like that. And give you some feedback. That will greatly increase people's desire to run Bitcoin, especially with, like I said, the prices coming up. There'll be some excitement. Those things will happen. And I like to think that just the advances in computers is going to make a difference because that's happening in kind of an exponential sort of way, too. Yeah, the famous Moore's Law. I mean, I have a laptop sitting here in front of me. It drives a 4,000 by 380 some odd screen, um, which is a 40 five-inch monitor that I have here, along with a monitor that comes on the laptop, which is 1920 by 1080 or whatever the HD quality is. And that one I'm running only at quarter resolution. I can run that on my laptop and my monitor at the same time. That takes, I don't know how many Hmm. gigs on the graphics card. Nice. And on top of it, it's got 16 gigs of memory. It's got an i7 that runs four cores that does two virtual cores per per core. Hmm. So that's eight cores. And it's got a terabyte drive. Hmm. I mean, this computer was science fiction yeah. for me for most of my career. Yeah. And it was a sub $1,200 uh, laptop. So there is absolutely no doubt that the price of computing is going to go down and that people will be able to run full nodes in, in the future. And a lot of what feels like a wall for us um, in terms of uh, network capacity and computer speed will fade away with time. The question is, how do you get there? So yeah. let's talk about one other uh, pressure towards centralization, and that is this controversy. Yeah. Um, this controversy um, is turning people away. It's, it's making people view Bitcoin as dysfunctional. And when people walk away from the protocol, then you get centralization. Hmm. Uh, When the block size is too small and transactions take too long and the fees go too high, people will not use Bitcoin and they will use, you know, basically if Bitcoin doesn't have an advantage over a credit card, then why would you use Bitcoin? You do have a credit card in your pocket. So this argument is putting a lot of pressure towards centralization on the Bitcoin protocol and on the network. So um, hmm. I just want to make that that point clear. That's a good point. Darn good point. Right now, I think people are reading into things more than is there. Then you get this uh, tension in the ecosystem. Do you think there are any people that are in the Bitcoin sphere who are doing an excessive amount of backstabbing and kind of pitting people against each other, pitting different developers against each other purposefully? <sighs> You know, maybe, yeah, um, it's tough but, to say. but all of the major players, like I did attend both scaling Bitcoin conferences 
I haven't been traveling a lot in the last few months trying to do real work on, on Factum. By the way, the whole point of Factum is to scale Bitcoin's proof of work in a way that meta protocols that need the Bitcoin ledger but don't need Bitcoin's transactions can implement themselves on the Factum protocol and do so essentially on a distributed autonomous protocol that's censorship resistant and out of the control of any one group, including myself. That's what I'm working on. And one of the reasons for Factum's existence is the identified need that we saw to build a place where all these meta protocols can live Mm -hmm. and live on top of Bitcoin, not on top of other blockchains and other uh, altcoins. Mm -hmm. Because Bitcoin has more security behind the data integrity of the Bitcoin ledger than anything else in the world. That's right. Not even the CIA or the federal government has the level of security. And understand this is the computer science notion of security, which is not that you can't get at the data, but that no change to the data can occur without us knowing the changes occurred and being able to repair it. Yes. Okay. Nice. So... So anyway, that's what I'm doing. And I believe that everyone in the space that's working in it honestly and sincerely believes they're doing the best thing they can do for the Bitcoin protocol. And this includes people that I know very well personally, like Peter Todd and Luke Jr., as well as a lot of people that I know uh, peripherally, like Adam Beck and Greg Maxwell, uh, Jeff Garzak, and... um, Gavin and Driesen mm-hmm. and others. Everyone is is doing what they honestly believe they need to do to make Bitcoin successful. And they may not always agree with each other, but still, I think that what you say is true, that they have the best of intentions. Right. And so where's the fear-mongering coming? Part of it is, you know, for one thing, <laughs> I, I'll take one person out of the list of what I think is good behavior. I think Themos, the moderator for... Um, Michael Marquardt. <laughs> Okay. Um, He's Themos. Yes, yes. Some people say Thermos, but anyway, Themos. (laughs) Um, I think that, uh, I think he's done us a disservice by attempting to censor conversation and suppress views, legitimate views and legitimate concerns. I think it was very, very damaging to people personally, as well as to the protocol in general for him to label Bitcoin XT a altcoin hmm. and treat it as if it were an existential threat to Bitcoin yeah. as opposed to one group's attempt to solve a problem. I can't go on this enough. I think that was uh, amazingly harmful yeah, um, I agree. and divisive. And so his ability to tick off just literally thousands of people, I think, hurt his own positions, the the positions that he was espousing. I think that it damaged the reputation of uh, developers, you know, that are a lot of them donating significant time to build the Bitcoin protocol. Yeah. You know, it's all very sad. Now, over the last couple weeks, he's eased up and (laughs) he has not been moderating Bitcoin to such an excessive degree. Well, you know why, don't you? Because he found out that I was challenging him to a boxing match, a bare-fisted boxing <laughs> match, and, and I'm gonna—I I'm gonna, had no idea. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna put I, it, and I'm gonna put it out there again. Michael Marquardt, 
Thamos, whatever you want to call yourself, I'm going to challenge you again here on the show to a bare-fisted boxing match in public. You tell me where, when, I will be there at my own expense. I will box your ears off, chump. Okay, we can continue now. <laughs> I don't even know what he looks like, man. He might be an expert fighter. I don't care. I'm going to box the guy. I'm ready to go, Paul. <laughs> I tell you, you know, please, I hope to goodness I never cross you. <laughs> Come on, I'm only five. I'm only five eight, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, but you're motivated. That's what scares me. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I'm tenacious, too. <laughs> and um, so, in any case, for whatever reason, it, maybe that's it. Maybe maybe you have single-handedly or maybe uh, two-fistedly have, have saved um, uh, Bitcoin from uh, undue censorship. And if so, I do salute you. Thank you, sir. Um, but, but for whatever reason that he's backed off for a week or so, um, it's a good thing. It's amazing how quickly the tensions have diminished. And I believe, you know, a lot of the conversations that I've read online, while there's still a good bit of undue yelling and screaming about Blockstream, mm-hmm. uh, I believe that it's calming down and rational discussions are beginning to occur. This episode of Bitcoins and Gravy is brought to you by our good friends at MoonshineBootWax.com. Made by hand in small batches right here in East Nashville, Tennessee, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is the original, all-natural, non-toxic boot wax with a scent of orange. Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is a proprietary blend of American beeswax and other fine, all-natural ingredients. It's specially formulated to feed and protect your leather while also offering an excellent long-lasting shine. Whether it's your cowboy boots, your expensive wing tips, or your wife's favorite pumps, Moonshine Boot Wax is a must-have for gentlemen who care about their appearance. Moonshine Boot Wax is proud to partner with Community Food Advocates, a nonprofit organization working to end hunger by creating a healthy, just, and sustainable food system. Together with Community Food Advocates, Moonshine Cowboy Boot Wax is making a positive difference in the Nashville community, one shine at a time. You can buy your very own four ounce tin today by going to moonshinebootwax.com. And best of all, you can pay using Bitcoin. I do believe that the most intelligent thing that we could possibly do would be to either get rid of the two meg hard limit or at the very least get rid of the two meg hard limit for any software that is not running as a as a miner mm-hmm. there isn't any reason for anybody's wallet or anybody's full node to check the hard limit because if you aren't checking the hard limit what you're going to end up doing is following whatever the miners do that's right and there isn't anything wrong with that um you're trusting more than 50% of the miners to follow the rules. And you have proof of work that's telling you that the miners have approved these blocks. And I'm not suggesting that you don't, that software not check the uh, transactions for validity. Yes, 
when you get a block, you should run through all the transactions and check them for validity. I absolutely agree with that. Yeah. But the block size is just not a critical thing for um, software that is not involved directly in mining to check. And if people get rid of that out of software that is not involved in mining, then you will not have problems with hard forks over the block size going forward. And in basically the block size question becomes a question of uh, miners agreeing, their software agreeing, and we can more safely deploy updates and changes to the block size limit in the future. Yep. This is something that anyone with software today can change and can fix. It's not a big change or fix because basically there's one place in the code where you check the size of a block mm-hmm. and there's you know no particular reason to check it. There's also a limit of how many transactions can go into a block and that too is probably something you don't have to check mm-hmm. um, in your software. And then basically... Uh, when the miners begin to all use uh, Bitcoin Classic or Bitcoin XT or whatever, the block size can increase and everything will work fine. If we increase the block size in this way, the first block that's greater than one meg will break um, any clients that haven't been uh, or any software that hasn't been updated. Any miner that was still running on the old software would end up building blocks on a fork that that the rest of the network would not be on. Mm-hmm. And um, assuming that we did the changeover uh, to larger blocks with the exceeding majority of miners, say 90%, then um, maybe 10% or less will have the old software. They'll essentially be bumped off the real blockchain and will proceed to go mine on a on a fork mm-hmm. and the problem with that is that the difficulty goes with the hash power and so since 90% of the network would have um 90% of the hashing power i mean that's how you measure percentage of the network in the mining world is mm-hmm. who has the most computing power they'll run um, at 90%. So blocks that would have taken 10 minutes will take 11 minutes on average. Okay. Now, the blocks that are on the minor fork, the one that didn't update their software, they're only going to get 10% of the horsepower. That means that a block that would have taken 10 minutes is going to take 10 times as long, 100 minutes hmm. to mine. And so that fork will not only be different from the main fork, but it will also be draggingly, draggingly slow. And because uh, their blocks are are still limited to two megs, in that 100 minutes, they'll only be able to process about a fifth of the original transactions per minute that a one-meg block would have allowed. Hmm. So, you know, it takes longer and the number of transactions are dramatically smaller, and basically everyone will punt, and any miner that's in that situation will recognize it quickly and update their software 
or they'll just quit mining, one of the two. So with all of that in mind, do you have any, I don't know if you speak Mandarin at all, do you have any advice for Chinese miners? <laughs> what would you say to Chinese miners at this point, if you could communicate? Well, Chinese them? miners, um, anyone running the mining software can uh, move their limits to two megs. Right. Um, because mining has a hard limit and a soft limit. So you could set your soft limit at one meg, which means you won't create a block that's bigger than one meg. But you can set your hard limit to two megs, which mm -hmm. means if some other miner mines a block that's bigger than a meg, you'll still accept it as valid. Okay. And you've basically future-proofed your mining operation to work no matter what party whether it's Bitcoin Core, Bitcoin Classic, Bitcoin XT, Bitcoin Unlimited, all of these clients that are vying to increase the block side, no matter which one gains control, your software will work. Um, and this modification can be done to any Bitcoin client without a great deal of, of technical savvy. And so there you go. What about the idea that Chinese miners may stick with core forever, right? Some people say that that's going to happen and then ultimately lose future profits. Well, a lot of the miners were at the second scaling Bitcoin conference right, in right. Hong Kong. They all universally said they want at least uh, two meg blocks. A few of them were supportive of, of Bitcoin XT, but most of the miners were in the camp of just pushing the limit to two megs, and then continuing the argument for a year. Because basically, if we bump it up to two megs, we get another year of transactions. And uh, they have recently had a mining meeting, and the proposal that I read from one translation, I'm not uh, completely sure about the validity of the translation or the source, mm -hmm. but it appears that the miners have largely said that they're going to do what I suggest, which is, you know, bump their hard limits to two, two megs and to uh, prepare for a hard fork of Bitcoin to two megs. I see. Well, that sounds good, I think. Yeah. I mean, I believe that if we have a month of full blocks and we actually see fees skyrocket to 50, 60 cents a dollar per transaction, or even if that doesn't occur, if transactions just go from taking on the average of 10 minutes to you know hours to, to clear, then I think you're going to see a great deal of support for the status quo. Uh, we're going to see that support bleed away. If I look at the segregated witness um, solution that's in the Bitcoin core roadmap. Mm -hmm. It is at best going to go online somewhere in April. Okay. And then you will only get more transactions in the blocks based on how many wallets and how many other sources of transactions like offline wallets and, and exchanges and other applications that generate transactions. To the extent that people use segregated witness, you will get more transactions into the Bitcoin blocks. Mm -hmm. But not everyone will use segregated witness uh, on day one because there is a slight risk. And here is the risk. If a majority of the hashing power were to shift from segregated witness 
to the legacy transaction validation schemes that have been used up until now, mm -hmm. um, segregated witness transactions look like anyone can spend transactions to the legacy software. Yes. Which means that if I submit a transaction that's improperly signed, but takes segregated witness transaction outputs and routes them to my address, then legacy software will say, oh, okay. And legacy miners will put that transaction into a transaction block and they'll say it's okay. And if a majority of the miners are running the old software and not validating and checking this transaction properly, then the funds in a segregated witness transaction can be stolen. Hmm. Okay. That only occurs if at some point after segregated witness has been running for a while, somebody attacks the network with legacy Bitcoin software. Um, in that case, uh, Bitcoin will hard fork. The majority of the blocks will be um, non-segregated witness blocks. The segregated witness transactions will not be properly validated, and there is the possibility of stealing those transactions. So what hmm. is the story here? The story is a lot of people will not want to use segregated witness until it's just absolutely rock solid certain that the miners have shifted over to segregated witness support and that nobody is possibly going to go back to uh, the regular old software. Now, I'm not going to say this is a realistic worry. We've already been through this with uh, pay to script, uh, another format that was added a couple of years ago, somewhere around in there, to Bitcoin, where the script is actually a hash and you find out about the script later. Mm -hmm. um, this is a way of making transactions smaller that are multi-sig and stuff like that. Um, we, we use the same trick of an opcode that looks like, oh, it's just valid to legacy software. And the new software uh, did the proper validity checking. Mm -hmm. And so we've done it before. It's not caused any problems before. It won't cause any problems for segregated witness when it's deployed. However, there are, will be a lot of people that will want a little time, you know, a little mileage on the car. Mm -hmm. before they're willing to put significant funds behind uh, the new form of transaction. That makes sense. How long do you think this will take, this transition? Maybe another month. Mm -hmm. I think it might be May. If they deploy segregated witness in April, it may be May before you see significant relief of transaction pressure by the segregated witness protocol. Oh, man, a whole month? That's like a year in, <laughs> in real time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I don't know if I can but wait it's a also, month. <laughs> yeah, but that's also very fast when it comes to yeah. testing software oh, yeah. in the real world. Um, a lot of software, like you, you deploy Windows, you generally begin hearing whether an operating system deployment, whether it has significant issues, you begin to hear it a month or two, maybe three after it's been deployed in the real world. Right. And this whole thing's happening pretty quickly. And I finally got my mind wrapped around it when I listened to a Let's Talk Bitcoin with 
Andreas and Adam and Stephanie, and they talked about it, and Andreas really laid out what segregated witness was, and they discussed it, and that really helped me wrap my mind around it for the first time. Prior to that, I really didn't know what it was about, so anybody who hasn't, definitely check that out, because Andreas goes into some great detail about it, and that'll uh, I think that can help in addition to what Paul's talking about here. Yeah, and if you want the explain it like I'm five explanation to <laughs> segregated witness, um, the idea is that uh, transactions have unspent outputs um, that go into them, mm-hmm. and these unspent outputs need to have a signature that validates that the person that's submitting the transaction has the authority to spend those unspent transactional outputs. So if you think of it as a check that you're signing, uh, that's great. You know, it's a check. You sign it right there. But what if the area, you know, how big the check is, what if that was a real issue? And and, and in some sense, that's like the size of the transaction. Mm-hmm. Well, in the case of segregated witness, it's like you take a pair of scissors and cut the signature off the check mm-hmm. and you sign it and you put it in a different pile. And because it's in a different pile, it doesn't count towards the size of the transaction where you really care about it, which is sticking it in the block, hashing it, making sure you know, that you have Merkle tree and all the fancy stuff that Bitcoin does. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if you cut a chunk of it off, it's going to be smaller. Right. Now, the other thing is you end up then sending a block that has all the truncated checks out to everybody, but you also send a block that has all the signatures out. So segregated witness does not tend to diminish, you know, the total size of the data that's being transmitted. Right. But it does allow you to push the transactions out to everyone faster and the signatures faster to the miners who tend to have good internet connections, so they don't really care. But to the rest of the network, you really can rely on the proof of work on the checks that somebody has already validated them. And when you get the signatures, you can check them if you want sort of thing. So this is faster. This is a brilliant idea that somebody's come up with and that they're working on. And I have to say, it's the only kind of segregation I've ever approved of. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, Factum does all kinds of segregation. I I argued for the segregated uh, architecture in our own token. Uh, but was voted down because it's not the way Bitcoin does it. And so I was laughing when <laughs> oh, uh, <no. laughs> everybody started saying segregated witness was a good idea because I was like, ah, that's what I wanted to do. That is anyway, funny. but the other big advantage of the segregation of the signatures away from the transactions themselves is that um, it turns out that you can play with the signature and it remains valid. It's called signature malleability. Um, If the transaction ID, which is essentially computed from your check, you kind of think of it as the routing number and the count number on your check, you know, just as a metaphor. Okay, yeah. Um, Then uh, if it doesn't include the signature, then playing with the signature doesn't obviously affect the check that doesn't have the signature as part of it. Mm -hmm. But if the signature is part of it, then playing with it in, in, and this kind of breaks the analogy, but in Bitcoin, playing with something that's part of the check changes that transaction ID. 
And if you change the transaction ID, that means you have a hard time finding it in the sea of transactions that Bitcoin is processing and putting into blocks. And so think of it as in Bitcoin with this uh, signature malleability bug, Mm -hmm. it's a little like Harry Potter's unmappable address Mm -hmm. because once you've submitted the transaction to the network, you have no idea where it is. You don't have the address anymore, so you can't find it. Mm -hmm. It's there. And if you happen to walk up to the door and knock on it, you can look at it and go, oh, this is my transaction. Hmm. But from a programmable point of view, you can't necessarily find it if they're able to malleate the signature. But if you remove the signature from the transaction, now you don't have that problem anymore. Nice. And so that is one of the big kickers on segregated witness, which is what I was trying to do with some coin design I was doing. And Hmm. much smarter people in the Bitcoin world um, doing you know, really a much better job of implementation are doing with Bitcoin. Hmm. Um, It's already in the test network now, but it won't be available to deploy until April. Okay. That's coming soon though, man. That's exciting stuff. Well, it's coming soon, but I don't think with blocks already filling up, I don't think it's coming soon enough, which means if, if I look in my crystal ball, I see a block size increase for Bitcoin, probably at the end of February. If it turns out I'm wrong, I don't, you know. (laughs) But I do think that there is very little way I can imagine the small block size group. I don't see how they'll be able to keep the block size at one meg all the way to May. Yeah, Uh, I agree. I, I just don't see it. No, I don't either. And segregated witness, does not relieve enough pressure to be the sole solution for the long to run. the block size problem. Yeah, for the long yeah. run. I agree. Now, are you noticing any transactions <laughs> being slower than they were six months ago, a year ago? Well, I'm not. I'm like a lot of Bitcoiners. I'm more of a buy them and hold them kind of guy. Yeah. So I'm not real sensitive to transaction times, mm-hmm. but uh, companies like BitPay, uh, wallet providers, um, guys that are, you know, really big uh, Bitcoin enthusiasts um, who who want to pay for their coffee with Bitcoin, uh, they're going to notice this. And, and some people have said they've noticed it. I've noticed it. Oh, you have noticed I've it. I've noticed it. We had a Bitcoin meetup here a couple of weeks ago, one of our bit lunches, and there was a guy that showed up, and he was an older gentleman who's a little bit skeptical about Bitcoin. And so, you know, I felt like I led him through it, and I helped him set up a mycelium wallet on his smartphone, and I sent him $5 worth of Bitcoin because I wanted him to have something, you know, substantial in his first Bitcoin wallet. And uh, we waited and waited and waited and ended up, he had to go and I had to go and, you know, finally sent him an email. I had his business card and sent him an email saying, you know, w- once I saw it, however long later it was, hour, two hours later, congratulations. And I see that you finally received your $5 in Bitcoin because I can see the transaction. And uh, you know, I never heard anything. Never heard anything back from him. But yeah, it took a long time, man. It was embarrassing to me. <laughs> so it's it's become an embarrassment. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of unimpressive. And <laughs> and know. you know we have a we have a Bitcoin meetup um, here at the Factum offices in Austin. Even as I'm talking to you on the phone, and um, we occasionally set up people's wallets and we you know send them some Bitcoin. Yeah, And if you are setting up somebody's wallet and sending them some Bitcoin and it just doesn't go through, <laughs> eh, man, that just really, 
I know. makes the whole system look bad. It does. And of course, we've added uh, replaced by fee. Yeah. Um, and so the idea with replaced by fee is that when you see the transaction is not going through, that you can uh, bump up the fee and resubmit the transaction, mm. and it will replace the previous transaction. And um, the community is not real happy about that. No, I'm not either. So what are people saying? I can pay for my coffee with you, and you can say, oh, I see you've submitted that coffee payment. Uh, here's your coffee. Then I can go outside, and I can create a transaction with a bigger fee right. and send the money that I just gave you to myself. And because the second transaction has a bigger fee than the first transaction, I can basically reach my hand into the till and pull the transaction out and put it in my pocket. Yeah. And so a lot of people are not terribly happy, you know, particularly the people that would like to see a point of sale for Bitcoin. They're not really happy about this. Nope. The argument is that Lightning Networks will take up the slack for point of sale they have the advantage that they're instant and they're just as irreversible and they take transactions off of the Bitcoin blockchain, yet they are absolutely pure Bitcoin transactions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it is just really one of the brightest and most innovative ideas out there. However, until you have a way of doing point of sale, it makes almost zero sense to um, implement this uh, replace by fee, except if the developers are trying to push a fee market and drive the fees up. Right. Because in that case, um, you're enabled to hurry up the transaction for your friend to send him $5 worth of Bitcoin right. uh, by simply sending a, a transaction with a bigger fee and maybe pushing yourself up to the front of the line. Now, if everybody in the network is in the same boat, just like supply and demand, that fee right now at a nickel could be a dime, could be a quarter, could be a dollar, mm -hmm. could be a dollar fifty. I mean, there's a point where, you know, you, do you really want to pay a dollar fifty to send somebody five bucks? And are they going to be impressed if it costs that much? <laughs> right. <laughs> no. No. I mean, are they going to even be impressed if it costs 50 cents to send somebody $5? Yeah, probably not. Yeah. You know, um, there's a very, very small window where you can have reasonable fees before people say, you know, this, this just doesn't make sense unless I'm buying a car. Right. And if, if Bitcoin's only useful if you're buying cars and houses, then you're going to kill the network. It, the bottom line is, I believe this is a case of three or four or five carts in front of the horse. Yeah. And I think that they shouldn't implement something like replaced by fee without a viable alternative for point of sale. Hmm. I don't think they should be driving a fee market unless you've got a, a alternative for point of sale. And, yeah, I'm pretty firmly in the raise the block size at least a little bit until yeah. we build these solutions out. Yeah, and they will be built out. Yeah, they'll, they'll be built out. The question is whether you're going to get them built out before you've destroyed the credibility of the technology in the marketplace. Yeah. I mean, they may delay the Bitcoin revolution for 
you know, two years. Mm-hmm. Is that significant? Oh, yeah. I think so. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's significant. And for me, sadly, all I can do is stand at the sidelines and either cheer or cry. But Paul, before we go, I'd like to talk about Factum a little bit. If you would, please tell our listeners about Factum and how it creates digital fingerprints. And then if you would, just quickly tell us about uh, Project Gutenberg, which I think is fascinating. Certainly. Well, uh, Factum is a um, protocol for for handling data and securing it against the Bitcoin blockchain. So, for example, if you have an application, like, for instance, someone wants to issue a token that represents gold, mm-hmm. um, then they need to be able to register tokens in some chain somewhere and collect transactions that move those tokens around to different parties. And if somebody shows up with a token, be able to accept the token, uh, pay out in gold, and destroy the token. Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know basically a assets on Bitcoin scenario. Factum enables you to do that. You can create your own chain. You can issue your tokens on that chain, and you can use software to trade those tokens. And you can show up at some facility and redeem those tokens in the case of a gold asset or grain or oil or whatever. Hmm. But more interesting, uh, because those are very much like coin transactions, more interesting, you can put anything in the chain. It's completely up to your application. So if you need to um, audit a business process, then you can audit the events Say you've taken an account and you've given it to a debt collector who's a uh, subcontractor to your company, then the debt collector can log when they're making phone calls, when they contacted people, what they said, and and place these hashes into Factum. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the process, provide that information that will validate against the hashes in this chain they built. And you can verify and validate that your subcontractor did what they were supposed to do, did it when they were supposed to do it, and you have all the data and they haven't omitted anything, which is really critical if you're tracking mortgages. For example, when Bank of America got fined $17 billion, it was because there was data lost and they weren't able to find all the information behind a mortgage. And, you know, that was bad enough. They, you know, countrywide melted down and and records were lost and systems of record went away and you didn't have any idea what was missing and and what was valid and what order it was all in. Mm -hmm. And that was bad, but then it was worse when someone decided to make up data and and just, you know, guess. Well, a lot of foreclosures went on uh, against people that never missed a payment. There were loans that were renegotiated that it was completely ignored. And so they were held to terms that had been changed over time. It affected a lot of people. That That was bad stuff, man. It did. But if there was a factum chain that hashed each document into that chain for a very, very small cost and secured against the Bitcoin blockchain, Mm -hmm. um, you could prove that you had all the documentation. And if you were missing documentation, you could prove what documentation was missing. Mm -hmm. And that information could 
survive the destruction of the systems of record that generated it because the chain continues to live. So if that data, even if I got that data from drug lords out of Mexico, if it matches the hash, I know it's the valid data. Right. And so that information could have traveled from bank to bank to institution to institution. At any step of the way, it could be verified and validated that all the information was in place. And so you would catch a problem as close to the source of the problem as possible, which all of us understand as being the best way to solve the problem and ensure that you don't make mistakes. Yes. And so Factum can provide a mechanism to solve that. Well, we did a demo with the Gutenberg library. Now, the, the demo was not to demonstrate some sort of useful management of public domain books, but it was to demonstrate how much data and how much metadata that you could place around that data and put into Factum and and do it for a fairly low cost and and with high capacity. Mm -hmm. So we took 29,000 records. We put the titles and the authors and some you know metadata like that around the hash of the book itself and we placed a separate entry for each book into a Gutenberg library chain in Factum. And 29,000 records went boom right into Factum. Mm. And um, they're still, they're there uh, now secured against the Bitcoin blockchain. Now, it can provide the services of uh, data integrity. If someone were to provide uh, a copy of Huckleberry Finn sometime in the future, they hash it and, and match the hash against Huckleberry Finn inside of Factum secured against the Bitcoin blockchain, mm -hmm. then they have effectively proven that this digital document that they happen to be holding in their hand is exactly to every bit the identical document that we had back in September of 2015 hmm. when we hashed all these books and placed them into Factum. That's cool. And so, um, yeah, it is pretty cool. Now, uh, shortly after, in October, we began um, factumizing all the uh, market data for Factum and a few other uh, cryptocurrency tokens like Bitcoin and others. Hmm. And we were, put, we were putting that information every minute um, or every 10 minutes into, into Factum. So there is this cryptographically secured history of Factum prices uh, and Bitcoin prices as defined by the market in Factum and secured against the Bitcoin blockchain. So, Man, that's so cool. <laughs> and there are other demos that we're working on. We're, we're working on projects with the management of municipalities with land title work. We're doing work with charities to provide more transparency, provable transparency, mm -hmm. and others. And you'll be hearing announcements about that in the coming weeks and months. And the work is, you know, it keeps me up at night in a good way. I have plenty to do. Hmm. It's very, very exciting. And um, it's all to make the world a better place and to ensure that Bitcoin is at the heart of every blockchain uh, technology that does anything. The Factum is built to scale. It's built to handle anything from a stock exchange to your children's birth certificates if you so cared to Factumize them. And it's architected in a way 
that no particular application has to look at anybody else's data. It's segmented. You can segment your application's data from any other application that's running in Factum. That's neat. You know, it sounds to me like Factum is something that people with integrity are going to want to use, right? Banks and charitable organizations that want that transparency. But of course, for those people who want to do nefarious things within banking, like, you know, HSBC and Wachovia did with the money laundering, um, they don't want, <laughs> they don't want Factum, right? <laughs> they want that opaque, you well, know, old fashioned way of doing it. Some of them, I mean, there are the criminals out there that don't like this idea of all of this you know, inconvenient, pesky uh, transparency. Well, you know, this is a very common, what I think is a misconception, because here's the thought experiment. Take the most obnoxious, least honest, most motivated to steal, thieve, and lie individual you can possibly imagine. I'm thinking Dick Cheney. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Dick Cheney. Uh, (laughs) Picture them in your mind. Then ask yourself, does this person want to live in an honest world? And you know what the answer is? The answer is yes, because Hmm. you want to be dishonest, but you don't want people that deal with you to be dishonest, no matter how dishonest you are. Hmm. Interesting. And and so when you employ a technology like Factum, almost every decision maker is in the position that they are imposing a level of honesty on someone else. They're, they're not imposing it on themselves. Right. They're imposing it on someone else. And you always want the other guy to be the honest guy. Mm. Good point. And, and so that's, that is the, that this is why I call honesty to be a subversive concept. Mm. If you can create systems that are cryptographically honest, it's impossible to argue that you don't want honesty. Hmm. And it's impossible to imagine as an individual, you don't want the guy you're dealing with to be honest with you. If I'm buying a Coke from somebody and he goes, here's a Coke, I want him to have actually given me a Coke. Right. You know, I don't want to open it and find out it's, it's, it's uh, food coloring and water. Right. I want a Coke, right? And so Factum can be used to track the origin of foods and products and uh, pharmaceuticals and track them through shipping containers from their origin all the way to a manufacturing facility where the final product is assembled so that customers can be assured that the product they're buying is what they thought it should be, that, Hmm. that that it didn't get substituted ingredients along the way. And the guy who has the plant putting these products together, he doesn't want someone deep in the supply chain swapping out an inferior product or component for his products. He wants it to be what he bought. And now I admit someone somewhere along the line wants to lie. Yeah. But if you build a system that makes it very, very difficult to add a history of a product um, with the appropriate digital and cryptographic signatures that honestly don't require much more technology than a smartphone. Yeah. Okay. Then if they can't produce the history, they can't possibly put a fake identity on a product. If they can't put a fake identity on a product, 
they can't insert an invalid product into the supply chain. Hmm. Okay. They may be able to substitute a product, but then they have the valid product plus the bad product. You know, that, that doesn't necessarily work, you know, because it's not like you can resell it in, in this world where you're tracking uh, the origin of products because people will see that the same product's being delivered to two places at the same time. Right. So if you've got honest accounting and cryptographically secured audit trails, it will make the world it won't make the world perfect and it won't make the world totally honest. But by golly, it's it's gonna help. It's, it's an improvement. <laughs> a, a vast improvement. A vast improvement, yes. It really is. Wow, that is cool stuff, man. And we want to underscore the reason Factum exists is to ensure Bitcoin is at the heart of all of these solutions. Nice. So uh, would you recommend that people go out and uh, purchase some factoids? <laughs> no. <laughs> no? No, 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 no. I, one, <laughs> I will not make any recommendations for <laughs> cryptocurrency. Um, anyone who get takes my advice for day trading uh-huh. <laughs> is going to be a much poorer person for it. Um, yeah, same here. I'm not, I'm not good at it. I tried and failed. <laughs> I tried and it was a, it was at least a, I don't even really want to say how many zeros were behind the Bitcoin that I lost. Oh no. Uh, trying to, to come out ahead. I mean, I think in the end I was relatively even, yeah, but man, good. I was up so high and then, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to suggest that. I do believe in my project. <laughs> I do believe that Factum is going to change the world. We have architected the coin to reflect the value of the protocol. Yeah. But balanced on that, the, uh, you know, because that's that's what the token is for. The token is for rewarding the servers and, and, and making sure that the servers are rewarded mm-hmm. um, based on the value of the protocol, the, the actual costs plus enough of a reward to be incentivized to run the protocol as the way it's designed. But the token is not at all ever required to use the protocol. There is a conversion process that lets you buy entry credits from someone that does have the token, and you never have to touch a token uh, to create a chain, to create an entry, to record your data, to read your data. You never have to touch it. And the cost of putting data into Factum is always a tenth of a cent per K. That's so cool. Yeah, it's it, no matter whether the token flies up or the token goes down. One of the reasons we put market data into Factum is to provide an oracle to keep the um, exchange rate of tokens, Factum tokens, we call them factoids, to entry credits, keep that at a constant real world value of, you know, right now we're thinking about a tenth of a cent. I see. The price of that might go up or it might go down, but it will, you know, just like gas or or any other commodity that you buy might go up and down. But once you've bought it, then, you know, a gallon of gas is a gallon of gas, whether you bought it at $2 or you bought it at $1.30. Right. And you keep it five months and you burn it and it'll burn just the same. So, yeah. you know, basically anybody using Factum never has to worry about currency, money transfer business, money service business regulations. It is strictly a license to use a protocol at a market cost required to build a global system on Bitcoin. 
that provides all the advantages that ProCall provides. So that's the that's the point of it. Yeah. And um, we're really excited. We are working to change the world like so many people in the Bitcoin space. Yeah. We fervently believe that Bitcoin, Factum, Ethereum, and many of these other technologies are going to make the world a better place. I completely agree. Listeners, you've been listening to Paul Snow talk about, among other things, Factum and the great blockchain-sized debate. Paul, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me on Bitcoins and Gravy. It is the show with the best theme song ever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, thank you very much. And hey, do me a favor and tell Linda I said hello. I will, absolutely. All right, Paul, say hey to Austin for me, too. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Bye. Bye. And I'd like to thank my guest on today's show, Mr. Paul Snow. Paul, thank you for your many contributions to the Bitcoin community and your commitment always to what is good and true. And a special thanks to his wife, Linda Snow, for keeping Paul in line. Linda, we know you've got your work cut out for you. And I'd like to give a shout out once again to CryptoCompare.com, the absolute best resource on the internet for discovering new, up-to-date information about the exciting and ever-changing world of cryptocurrencies. CryptoCompare.com, the best resource for cryptocurrency traders and investors. CryptoCompare.com. And on the subject of cryptocurrencies, I would like to take just a moment to warn all my listeners about one of the biggest scams and Ponzi schemes currently being perpetrated around the world. Yes, I am referring to OneCoin. I'll keep it brief. Do not, and I repeat, do not invest in this coin. If you have, I'm sad to say you may have lost your money. This scam has absolutely nothing to do with digital currencies or Bitcoin or anything tech related. OneCoin has already taken tens of millions of dollars out of people's pockets with promises of a great return. Friends, there simply does not exist a single cryptocurrency including Bitcoin, that can promise any return at all. That would be like being able to see the future. Not possible. So listeners, whenever you hear this kind of language being used, run, don't walk, run away from the scam. That's right, OneCoin is a scam, and a lot of people have already lost a lot of money. Sadly, a lot of people are going to continue to lose money for as long as this scam lives. Uh, With any luck, the perpetrators will be caught and tried accordingly. I would also like to take this opportunity to publicly reprimand a guy who is known on Reddit as Thamos, T-H-E-Y-M-O-S, I believe is how it's spelled. Uh, I've heard that his name is Michael Marquart, but I have not been able to verify that. So I'll just address Thamos. Thamos, you have done a great deal of damage to the Bitcoin community with your censorship and manipulation of information and communications that would have been open and honest were it not for your dishonesty and your complete lack of integrity. I therefore challenge you, sir, and I use that term loosely, to a public boxing match as a physical representation of a reality wherein the battle between good and evil endures. Listeners, it's up to you to figure out which side would be the good side and which side would be the evil side. Thamos, I hope you will accept my challenge and give me an opportunity to kick the shit out of you, you two-bit punk. And an extra special thanks to our sponsor, Moonshine Cowboy Bootwax. 
the original all-natural non-toxic boot wax with a scent of orange. The Nashville Wax Company is now offering Moonshine Biker Boot Wax. Yes, the same high-quality boot wax now available in black. Moonshine Biker Boot Wax, waterproof up to 100 miles an hour. Their newest product is now also available at 15 different fine retail outlets in the Nashville area, including the shops at the Nashville International Airport. To order a tin of your very own without even getting up out of your chair, just go to moonshinebootwax.com. Use your credit card, your debit card, or better yet, pay the modern way with Bitcoin. That's right, Bitcoin, the modern way to pay. And a shout out to the Bitcoins and Gravy freelance transcriptionist for his excellent and highly accurate transcription work. Professional transcriptions of the show can be found on our website, bitcoinsandgravy.com. And to get in touch with the freelance transcriptionist, just head over to diaryofafreelancetranscriptionist.com. And finally, I'd like to thank my loyal listeners. That's you for tuning in and for giving me such great feedback about the show. Your comments in the show notes are always appreciated, as are the tips that you send to my Bitcoin wallet. I'm a hardworking guy with two jobs without a lot of money, so every little bit counts. Even a 50-cent tip sent to my wallet goes a long way to making me feel that doing this job on a volunteer basis as I do it is worth it. It also helps keep the lights on and coffee in the kettle. And if you find yourself in the Nashville area, make sure to check out our Nashville Bitcoin Meetup group and to join us each Wednesday at high noon for our weekly Bit Lunch. Usually there's a representative there from BTC Media, which recently brought their headquarters to Nashville and is now the largest Bitcoin media group in the world. Anyway, at the Bit Lunch, we have a lot of fun each week. Uh, we meet and we greet new Bitcoin folks, we share our Bitcoin stories, and we help newcomers set up their first Bitcoin wallets on their smartphones. So come join us for our weekly Bit Lunch. Everyone is welcome. Signing off now from Nashville, Tennessee, I'm John Barrett, the host of Bitcoins and Gravy, here each week with my trusty dog, Maxwell, right by my side. Say goodbye, Maxwell. <laughs> Until next week, friends, remember that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Do something, y'all, and be proud of it. I know that it may sound absurd, but I have for you a magic word. And today's magic word is snow. S-N-O-W. Snow. As in the sentence, it is my dream to one day be a Bitcoin millionaire and to take Paul and Linda Snow out to dinner at Chez Paris. Bon appétit, mes amis. Now climb aboard, y'all. This train is bound for glory. And there's plenty of room for all. Well, Satoshi Nakamoto, that's a name I love to say. And we don't know much about him, but he came to save the day. When he wrote about the way things are and the way things are to be, he gave us all a protocol this world had never seen. Oh, Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain. Oh, Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain. Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. Down the road it will be 
told about the death of old Mount Gox, about traders trading altar coins and miners mining blocks. But them good old boys back in Illinois and on down through Tennessee, see they don't care to be a millionaire, they're just wanting to be free. Our Bitcoin, as you're going into the old blockchain, our Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain, till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name. A promise to deliver us from age-old tyranny A Bitcoin as you're going into the old blockchain A Bitcoin, I know you're going to rain, going to rain Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your name Till everybody knows, everybody knows, till everybody knows your Give me some exposure Everybody knows your name, sing it Oh Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go Oh, Lord, pass me some more Oh, Lord, before I have to go We have front row seats in the development of a historic technology that is doing things that have never been done before. And every day that goes by, I just feel amazed at at having this opportunity to be frontline observer and sometimes influencer in what is turning out to be perhaps a historic generational worldwide impactful disruptive change in technology, one that will create history. And that is an amazing feeling. Whoa, whoa, whoa.